the National Archives podcast series. This talk is about entity disambiguation in digital cultural heritage. It is presented by Seamus Lawless with an introduction by Neil Johnston and was recorded on the 17th of May 2018 at the National Archives, Kew. Welcome to the ninth Big Ideas uh, seminar. My name is Irini Gudaruli and I am the digital research lead here at the National Archives. For those who don't know, Big Ideas is a monthly seminar series organized by the research team. At this seminar series, we welcome speakers from across the UK and internationally who present their cutting-edge research of interest to the archival and academic sector. Today is our final Big Ideas seminar for this academic year, but please follow us on Twitter for updates for our next exciting program for the next academic year. So I will welcome now Neil Johnson, who is our early mood and record specialist, who will introduce the speaker for today. Thanks, Irene. I've had the pleasure of working with Shay for the last 18 months or so, two years nearly now, on, is it two, no, 18 months, on Beyond 2022 which is the project that TNA is in partnership with Trinity College in Dublin, um, Prony and the National Archives of Ireland to try and digitally recreate um, the Irish Public Record Office as it was in 1922. And I'll talk about briefly about that in a moment for those of you who don't know, but uh, Shay, I suppose, has been the technical mind behind some of the major DH projects in Ireland, really the major DH projects in Ireland in the last decade, starting with the... Um, or culminating with the 1641 depositions project, which was testimonies of uh, atrocities supposedly committed against Protestants in Ireland in the, the 1640s during the civil wars there, where they took, I think about 10,000 documents and uh, digitized them, transcribed them, and that sort of kicked off a, a flurry of work in Trinity College with um, subsequent projects. One is known as the 1659 Down Survey, where they took uh, maps created in the 1650s overlaid GIS information on them and again shaded all the, the background work on that and where I, where I come into it really with them is in beyond 2022 where uh, historians like myself are sort of squirreling away looking for replacement materials which we kind of then just hand to Shay and say what are you going to do with this because you know most of us don't know what to do with it so he, he has the unenviable job of trying to create the database then create the links between replacement or documents, uh, copied documents, and then turn all that into some sort of whiz-bang <laughs> interface uh, that we have great expectations for. And he also does a very good job at the board meetings I've been at, manages to stay friends with everybody. It's quite, quite an impressive feat. So I'll, I'm delighted to have him here today. It's a, I'm really looking forward to this and a paper on um, entity disambiguation in digital cultural heritage, so. Hi everyone, thanks Emil for, for coming along today. So uh, as Neil said, I'm going to talk a little bit about our work across a couple of different projects on um, entity disambiguation, um, particularly in digital cultural heritage. Um, so I'm not from a humanities background at all, so I'm a computer scientist who has ended up working on these projects very much more by accident than design. Um, I got involved in, in the first digital humanities projects that I worked on back in around about 2007 
I've been involved in a, a series of these, uh, of these projects since, which has provided, uh, from a computer science perspective, really interesting research challenges, really interesting data to work with, and allowed us to apply some of the techniques we already had and develop more specific techniques specifically for those, for those challenges that historians primarily, but other humanities scholars face also. So uh, Neil said that, that I'm, I'm the technical mind behind um, some of these projects. In fact, I'm not. People like uh, Gary Munley, who's, who's sitting here, is the actual technical mind uh, behind these. I get to stand here and take the glory while Gary does all the work. Um, but Gary's PhD is actually on entity disambiguation and digital cultural heritage. So a lot of what I'll present today is work coming from Gary's PhD. So it's a, a, a lot of this work is Gary's, not mine. Um, but I hope I'll do a, a reasonable job of, uh, of presenting it to you. So I, I'm going to talk about a few different things today, or I'll mention a few different aspects of this area. Um, so when I say entity disambiguation, what do I mean? So there's a few technical parts to this. You have a collection of material, a, a collection of manuscripts, say, that talks about people and places and organizations and events. Those are the entities. Those are the things, the real world things contained within your content collections. In order for a computer to be able to do anything with those entities, search for them, reason about them, it needs to know where they are in the collection and what they are. And that's essentially what we're talking about. You have named entity recognition or spotting. That's finding the people and places and organizations within your collection, identifying where they're mentioned on various content. Classifi classification, that's deciding are they people or are they places or are they organizations, so classifying them into their groups. And then you have disambiguation. So is the... Philip O'Neill, who's mentioned on page 24 of your collection, the same Philip O'Neill who's mentioned in another document 500 pages later. So trying to reconcile those various mentions of sometimes the same and sometimes different entities and using whatever material we can to do that disambiguation. So I'll start with a bit of a modern uh, example of what I'm talking about. So I don't know if all of you will have seen, most of you probably will have seen at this stage, this is a video by uh, Childish Gambino called This Is America. It's a new song which was released the start of this month. And it is, as of yesterday or the day before, it's the number one trending video on YouTube. It has over 118 million hits on YouTube. It's only released the start of this month. Um, so it's an incredibly popular um, piece of art which uh, has created quite a buzz on, online. It's one of these viral successes online. It's created that buzz in part because it talks about um, a, a lot of significant issues in black culture. Um, so it's created a, a lot of discourse and a lot of media coverage online. So you've got lots of news articles, um, BuzzFeed, NBC News. You know you've made it when you're in the Irish Times. Um, so, you know, lots of, of articles about this, this song and its impact and its, its, uh, its significance. So why on earth am I talking about Childish Gambino? Well, because what all these articles don't tell you is that Childish Gambino is 
actually a guy called Donald Glover, who's also a comedian. Comedian who's done stand-up, who's appeared on Saturday Night Live, who's an extremely popular and well-known comedian. And what these articles don't tell you is that Donald Glover, the comedian, is also Donald Glover, the actor, who has been in The Martian and lots of other, um, of lots of other movies, Spider-Man. So it, it doesn't tell you that this is the same person. Um, it also doesn't tell you that he's also a DJ under the name MC DJ. It doesn't tell you that he has a brother, Stephen Glover, who is a, uh, a writer and a producer. Um, in fact, Donald's Google entity card states, and I'll read this, uh, Donald McKinley Glover Jr. is an American actor, comedian, writer, director, producer, singer, songwriter, rapper, and DJ. So one of those really annoying people who's just bloody talented at everything he does and like frustrates the rest of us ordinary people. So multiple personas all referring to the same person. And unless you research this person, you've no idea that these are the same person, right? So you've no way of identifying that. But we have knowledge bases which do that, right? So this is uh, Donald Glover's DBpedia page. So DBpedia is a, a structured knowledge base extracted from Wikipedia content. So it takes Wikipedia and tries to extract all of the facts from Wikipedia. So Donald Glover was born on the 20th of February, 1981, right? It, it pulls that out of Wikipedia and it encodes it as a series of facts here. So he was actually born on 25th of August, 1983. He was born in Los Angeles. Um, he it resides in Los Angeles. So all of these facts, and it encodes them in a way that a computer can reason across them. What it also allows us to do then is map all these various references to different personas of the same person to one resolution to one referent, one way of understanding that these are all the same person. So we take the articles about This Is America, we take his IMDB profile, we take the stories about Saturday Night Live, we take the video, we identify everywhere in the text that Childish Gambino is mentioned, that Donald Glover is mentioned. We can identify him in photos through image analysis, we can also identify him through image analysis on videos, so you can identify by machine learning techniques places where this person's face appears within a video, and you can map them all to that DBpedia entry, that linked data representation of this real-world person. And that allows us to disambiguate Childish Gambino, Donald Glover the comedian, MCDJ the DJ, Donald Glover, the actor, and allows a computer to understand that these are all the same person. They're all different personas of the same real-world person. And that's essentially what um, entity disambiguation is, okay? It's allowing us to, to map multiple references of an individual to one referent. That's all great, but cultural heritage data is a whole different ballgame. Right? So when it's great when we're dealing with modern data sets where it's all digital text, it's all consistent, it's all in a predictable format. There's knowledge base entries for all of these entities. 
unfortunately that's not the case when we're dealing with cultural heritage content. To start with, the, I mean, the term digital cultural heritage alone is extremely broad. It could refer to, to a huge different range of material. Often when we, when I say, often when we think of cultural heritage content, that's when people from outside the, the humanities disciplines think of cultural heritage content. This is what we picture, right? It's a manuscript. Uh, you know, that's what people who are, aren't involved when they think cultural heritage content, that's what immediately jumps to mind. But there's also obviously a, a whole, even within this type of content, there's a whole range of material and, and then there's lots of other types of content. If you have manuscript collections, they may be the, the original manuscript with no digital surrogate. They may be the original manuscript and there's a, a, a high resolution image of that manuscript. That high resolution image may have gone through a, an optical character recognition process, an OCR process, to create digital text, which is a representation of the original. It may have been manually transcribed. Someone may have sat down and manually transcribed that text, so you have a really accurate digital representation of the original um, content. It may even have inline annotation, so someone might have come along with a tool and said, this is a mention of Philip O'Neill, and it's that Philip O'Neill and linked to a, a, a knowledge base to, to, to disambiguate that manually. There's any scope of that material may or may not exist and that changes from collection to collection and it grows and, and uh, it, it very much uh, dictates what you can do with a collection, what exists or what state it exists in. You also have secondary material. So this, um, this is a, a one of the 1641 depositions that, uh, that Neil referred to in his introduction. So it's a you know, 17th century handwritten legal document, it's someone being deposed given their uh, opinion on a series of events that took place. These are images that were drawn much later that represent the events described in the legal documents but they're very much closely linked. They're not part of the original collection, but they're obviously representative material which describes the original collection. So you can see some of the horrors that took place. This is a, it's a, a baby on a pike here who's been murdered as part of the, the 1641 rebellion. And the Irish Tourist Board, Board Falcher, would like me to reassure everyone that we're much more welcoming to visitors these days than we were in the 1600s. But um, my point here is that uh, this is a secondary material which references the original material and talks about the same entities, the same people, the same places, the same events. We also have more modern typed content. So this is from the military archives in Ireland. Um, this is an example of illuminated manuscripts that we worked with from the University of Padua. So these are 14th century herbal manuscripts. They also have astrological codices. But these are very different to the depositions in that they're text and image. And the image is just as important as the text. And in fact, the location of the images even on the, the manuscript itself have significance. Where they are, what colors they are how they're referred to by the text. So maintaining that integrity is critically important. Lots and lots of map and illustrative geographical material. So some of these are from, this is the, the down survey that uh, Neil referred to. This is also down survey and some of these are from the Fagel Library which is held in Trinity College. Um, but a lot of these have visual representations 
of places. Um, so you'll have churches illustrated on the maps, for example. You'll have uh, mountains and towns illustrated on the map. So again, entities, real world things that can be analyzed and extracted and linked back. Um, in the Fago map library, you have seafaring routes, you have battle plans, you have street plans that have uh, multiple copies of street plans over the period of centuries. Again, lots of places, lots of people mentioned. You have lots of travel literature as well, which describes the, the maps in detail. We have maps that cover the whole period of the voyages of discovery. So on the global maps, you'll see on this one, there's just a little bit of the east coast of Australia illustrated, and you can see those coastal outlines grow over a period of centuries as more discoveries happen. Um, and lots of other types of material, right? Photography, musical scores, newspaper articles, newspaper archives. Um, so we've done some work on uh, temporal indexing of entities, so where we have a newspaper article that covers multiple decades in a span, we can look and see if the, the attitudes or the sentiment expressed towards an entity over that time period changes. So one of the really interesting things that we've looked at is we have a New York Times, this is Gary, another colleague, Annalena and myself, we have the, an archive of the New York Times from the period, I think it's 1987 to 2003 or something like that. 2007, 87 to 2007. And we looked at the attitudes or the sentiment expressed towards George W. Bush pre and post 9-11 and how that changed over that period of time. So lots of really interesting things that you can do with that content. Mostly, even though we have all that different type of content, they present very different challenges, right? So the extracting entities from a map or an illustrative material versus extracting entities from text are very different challenges. Using machine learning to spot visual images of a specific person within a video is a very different challenge to entity disambiguation in text. So as I'm talking today, I will be primarily giving examples based upon text, extracting and disambiguating entities from text. So most of my examples will, will be focused on text and most of them will actually use the 1641 depositions as, as the primary example. So the depositions were, were taken over a period of about 20 years in the middle of the 1600s. They're written in, there's about 8,000 depositions, about 30,000 pages of content of that handwritten uh, manuscript content. About 60,000 people mentions and about 7,500 place mentions throughout the depositions. We know all that because three saints sat in a room for three years and manually transcribed every single one of those 30,000 pages. I honestly can't even fathom how their sanity survived it, but an incredible task, right, of manually transcribing, so literally the high-res image on one screen, a Word document on another, typing the, the page in, which is really difficult even from a paleography perspective. The handwriting is really difficult to read, let alone the linguistic characteristics of the content because it's early modern English. And it's a very specific style of early modern English. It's the main thing it's missing and the main problem for us from a technical perspective is lack of consistency. So there's no standardization, no real standardization in spelling 
A lot of the, the writing is almost phonetic. There's no standardization in the use of capitalization, punctuation, so there's very little punctuation. If you read any of the depositions, they read almost stream of consciousness-like because sentences, uh, there, there are no sentences, there's no breaks between the sentences. Um, so no lack of standardization in those, those characteristics of the, the text. So what that means is we, even word order is different in, in this style of early modern English than to modern English. Those are all the things we rely on for, for entity extraction and for natural language processing, right? They're all the little clues that you can take. Okay, here's two words next to each other in the middle of a sentence, both of them are capitalized. That might be a name, right? When you don't have standardized capitalization, you can't rely on those things. So it's extremely difficult from a, from a natural language processing perspective, which is actually great for us from a computer science perspective because this is exactly what you see on social media today. If any of you read Twitter or read Facebook posts, people can't spell. People don't use capitalization consistently. They don't break their sentences up consistently, right? So it's the type of content we encounter. We've gone back to using early modern English basically online, but it's the same challenges we face. So computer science techniques that we develop based upon the depositions, we can then apply on, on modern content also. So for named entity recognition, you have lots of, of mentions here uh, of entities throughout this little piece of text. So the rebels that so despoiled and robbed the said Sir Charles Coote and the deponent in the Queen's County were and are Florence Fitzpatrick of Castletown in the same county, Esquire, a captain or great commander of rebels, whose wife, who sounds like a lovely person, wait you read this, as this deponent had been credibly told by diverse persons, said that she had but one hand and hoped that she should wash the same in Sir Charles Coote's blood. Right? So, I uh, hope she never got a hold of him. But um, there's lots of mentions of entities in there, right? There's people, Sir Charles Coote is mentioned, Florence Fitzpatrick is mentioned without any capitalization and with double Fs, um, which are, you know, a, a linguistic cue that you can use or a clue. Castletown with a trailing E, which it doesn't have in modern times. Queen's County doesn't, it's not named Queen's County anymore, it's County Leash in Ireland, it was renamed. Titles, so Esquire, a captain, great commander of rebels. You have anaphores or anaphora in here, so the deponent obviously refers to whoever the deponent is giving this particular deposition, um, and you have to do some of that anaphora resolution to figure out who that person is you're talking about in the passage. Again, more anaphora here, the wife, which in a lot of the depositions, you, you, you're never given their actual name. They're just referred to as their wife. You know, you're never told their, their actual name. And again, another reference to Sir, Sir Charles Coote, but second name spelt differently in the one paragraph of text, right? So extremely difficult to cope with. One of the things we tried to do in a project, an EU FP7, but a EU FP7 project called Cultura, was to normalize the text, to try and automatically normalize all the text of the, the depositions so that we could apply some of these NLP techniques. Now when I say normalize, we didn't touch word order, we didn't touch capitalization, and we didn't touch punctuation. It was just to try and normalize spelling. So extremely talented colleagues in the University of Sofia developed an algorithm working with us to normalize the spelling of the early modern English text. So we basically go from this text up here 
to this, te this text down below. So it normalizes some of that. And it's still not 100% accurate, right? So there's still some noise in there. You can see that Sir Charles Coots hasn't been normalized to have the E, the trailing E at the end of his surname. So it's not 100% perfect, but it does a pretty good job. What that allows us to do is search more consistently across the collections and identify um, some of the entities that exist in the collection more consistently. So a good example of this, if you search the 1641 depositions for the word devil, you'll get zero hits. But if you search across the normalized text, you actually get 23 hits. There's 23 mentions of the devil in the depositions. They're just never spelt with the modern spelling. There are various different uh, variations on the spelling of the word devil. So this helps us identify those, uh, those uh, entities more consistently. Um, another good example of the normalization kind of going a bit astray is that there's an entity in there called Richard Barnard, and that actually gets normalized to Richard Barnabas, so a completely different name, but because of when we're trying to apply the algorithm automatically, it's looking for patterns in the endings of words that have changed between early modern English and modern English. So just to kind of restate that these aren't exact uh, processes, or not 100% consistent. But what we try to do is then go from the normalized text to identify that the Sir Charles Coote mentioned in a few different forms within the text is actually this Sir Charles Coote. He's the first Earl of Mount Rath, um, an Anglo-Irish peer, also son of Sir Charles Coote, which doesn't help our algorithms whatsoever, I can reassure you. Um, first Baroness, uh, his uh, father was an English veteran at the Battle of Kinsale, so forth, right? So it allows us to disambiguate and figure out that this is actually this Charles Coote. Um, who, uh, a quote from a historian in TCD uh, who shall name, remain nameless uh, said, he's a fucking sociopath. <laughs> so I, I can't verify that, but this was the quote that was given to me. Um, and we can verify that Castletown is actually Castletown in County Leash, right? So Queen's County, but it's this place in County Leash, and this is a down survey map, which is uh, of the same time period. Um, okay, and our ultimate end goal is to be able to go from the original source, the original manuscript collection, to a digitized form of that text, do entity extraction on the text, and then figure out, disambiguate those entities and link them to a knowledge base, something like DBpedia, as we touched on, for example, with the modern example. That's the ideal scenario. Unfortunately, it, it, there's a lot of challenges involved in, in following that process. There's lots of difficulties that, that we face when we try to do that process. So entity linking is this, um, this part of the process. So it's going from an identified entity to link to a knowledge base. It's that disambiguation process. It's figuring out what entry in the knowledge base you want to link to. So given a suitable knowledge base, an entity linking system should identify a set of candidates, a set of candidate entities in that knowledge base uh, to which the mentions in the source text might be referring. Look at the evidence available, and that evidence available is in the, the source text of the collections, any information that you have that might help you decide who that entity is. 
and then identify which of those candidates, so you've selected a set of candidates, which of those is, is most likely to be the right person, okay? And that's essentially like a web search ranking process where there's thousands of web websites that might be right for your query, but you want them ranked in order of probability of, of which is most likely to hold the, the solution to your problem or the question you're asking. If no suitable candidates can be identified, you want to inform the system that this entity doesn't exist in the knowledge base. And that's critically important, and we'll reflect on this again towards the end. It's very important that if the entity doesn't exist in the knowledge base, that you don't then annotate it with someone that's incorrect. You don't make a best guess and pick someone that's wrong. It's important that you can have confidence in the entities that you are annotating, that if you're making a, a suggestion, that the chances are it's the right suggestion. There's a wide range of approaches in, in computer science uh, and in digital humanities which exist um, in, to try and tackle this problem. Um, and they range from very simple string matching, so that's just taking the text of the entity reference in the source, so Castletown, for example, searching the knowledge base to f find any entries that match that text, and then returning, returning back the set of candidate results. So simple text search. They go range from simple text search right through to what we call context comparisons. So that's using any information that you can from the source text, any information that you can from the knowledge base to try and figure out are these the same context. So if we're searching for Castletown, Queens County was mentioned in the source text, we know that's now County Leash. If we're searching for Castletown and it's being referred to in connection with County Leash, and there's four Castletowns in the knowledge base, only one of which is in County Leash, then we can start to make the inference that, okay, that's probably the right Castletown in this question. Many methods also make the assumption that entities which are mentioned together, ent entities mentioned in the same context, are likely to be related by a common theme. So if you have a bunch of entities all mentioned in the same document, and then that same collection of entities mentioned again in another document, you can start to look at the co-occurrence of those entities and matching the context across that co-occurrence. So if an entity doesn't exist in the knowledge base, then it's fairly self-explanatory to say that the entity linking system knows nothing about it or can know nothing about it. So if you're trying to match entities from a source text to a knowledge base and they don't exist in the knowledge base, then the entity linking system is bunched, right? It can't link to an entity that doesn't exist. These are called emerging entities, so entities that emerge from the source text that don't yet exist in the knowledge base. And this is a huge problem in cultural heritage. It's fine in modern texts because the likes of DBpedia based upon Wikipedia tend to have good coverage of all of the, uh, shall we say, famous or well-known people in the world today, right? So uh, most people that are mentioned in the media or a lot of people that are mentioned in the media tend to have knowledge base entries, tend to have Wikipedia pages, for example. So you have good coverage. The same is obviously not true about many cultural heritage collections. So if we take 1641, for example, there's thousands of people mentioned in 1641 who were soldiers, who were landowners, who, who have no entries in, in our knowledge bases, particularly not in our general modern knowledge bases, right? So a, a landowner from the 1600s isn't gonna have a Wikipedia page, right? So they're not gonna be in DBpedia. 
Now there are specialist knowledge bases and we'll talk a little bit about those, but this is a, a real problem for entity linking, right? The coverage of knowledge bases for the entities. A large proportion of entities that are important to the collection itself are either poorly represented, there's not good coverage, or they're entirely omitted from the knowledge base itself. So emerging entities uh, give us a, a big challenge. Evolving entities then are, uh, are another challenge. Cultural heritage collections tend to span sometimes broad periods of time. And we as people aren't static, right? Uh, the, the, way, the way we're referred to changes over time. So if you uh, think of titles, titles can be either past, inherited, can be elected titles. So things like the Queen of England, the Prime Minister, the Bishop of Mead, who that refers to depend on when the reference was made. Right? The Queen of England hasn't always been Elizabeth, the Prime Minister uh, hasn't always been Theresa May. It depends on when that reference is made, who the individual that refers to is. You have promotions of people. So in the depositions, you have people who in early documents are referred to as lieutenant, and then in later documents are referred to as captain because they got a little promotion over the course of time. And understanding that that's the same person is a difficult challenge. You also have maiden names, so you have a lot of uh, women in the content who are referred to by their, their maiden name and then later have married and have taken their husband's name and are referred to by their husband's name. And often are never referred to by their Christian name. So uh, combining or disambiguating those entity mentions is extremely difficult to do. So another example here, again, from, from the, the depositions of uh, sorry, emerging or evolving entities. Um, so this is from the deposition of Richard Castledine. Um, and for those, any of you that are, are interested, it's, it's manuscript 833, folio 115. And it says, uh, also he is often heard many, of the, heard many of the better sort of them. And the Irish saying about that the Pope and many of his cardinals with the emperor and king of Spain as his council with assistance of the king of France. So you have mentions to, of the Pope, the King of Spain, and the King of France. Depending on when this text occurred, you know, are they referring to Philippe VI? Probably not, right? Because he didn't exist at the time. What they're actually referring to is Philip IV, right? Who was King of Spain during the period of time that this deposition was taken. Um, he lived, or he reigned as King of Spain from 1621 to 1665, and the deposition was taken in 1642. Um, so we can say with a high degree of confidence, you know, that you're referring to, to Philip IV. Um, but if the deponent happened for some reason to be referring to a previous King of Spain or a previous Pope, we'd have no way of catching that, right? We're using the date of the deposition as a clue to disambiguate the, the mention and the generic mention, and that's the only clue we can go on. You can try and take context from the depositions. Another good example, if we see a reference to Ireland in, the, in a 17th century document, as we do see quite a bit in, in the depositions, what's the most appropriate disambiguation entry for that uh, reference to Ireland. So is it the, the island of Ireland, the physical landmass? Is it the kingdom of Ireland, which is probably the most appropriate for the time period? Or is it the, the modern day Ireland, the, the Republic of Ireland? 
understanding again the, the time period in question to make a best guess at what the best disambiguation of that is, which is probably the Kingdom of Ireland, right? Context matching, uh, as I've already hinted at, it's common to use context to provide clues per, for performing these disambiguations. You compare the context in which an entity mention is found to the context of the candidate referent in the, the knowledge base. And what I mean by that is, is mostly, there are more complex measures, but in most cases, it's just looking at term co-occurrence. So it's looking at the words that occur with this entity mentioned in the source text and the words that occur with this entity mentioned in the knowledge base. So using Castletown as an example, if there's an entry in the knowledge base where the word leash is referred to a few times with Castletown and in the other entries it's not mentioned at all, and in the source text, the words Queen Count, Queen's County is associated with Castletown, then we can use that context to infer which entry in the knowledge base is most likely to be correct. However, that makes assumptions about consistency which don't always hold in cultural heritage collections. So when dealing with, with older collections, uh, a contextual similarity measure based on co-occurring words so something, a modern day technique like word embeddings, which is a, an approach which tries to represent a text as a vector, that assumes that the nature of the text in the source collection is the same as the nature of the text in the knowledge base, which isn't true in this case. So early modern English and the, the, the early modern English found in the depositions is very characteristically different to the, early, to the English that you would find, the modern English that you would find in a knowledge base. So you're not comparing like with like. So it's important to be able to map between those two things if you are doing context matching. Um, some systems, some entity, entity linking systems base their, uh, their disambiguation uh, upon popularity, what they call popularity. Um, the intuition behind that is that the most popular referent in the knowledge base for any given surface form, so a surface form is just the, the text of the original entity mentioned in the source text, the, that the most popular referent in the knowledge base will be the correct referent for the majority of instances of that surface form. For cultural heritage collections, popular entities are not necessarily good candidates, and that can actually mislead the linking process. Um, it can encourage it to favor more popular modern entities than the more sensible historic entities. So popularity is typically in cultural heritage contexts not a great measure to use. Um, as I said, for, for cultural heritage collections, that can be detrimental. Okay, so there's lots of work in computer science literature on this challenge on entity linking. Um, there's not, not as much work in, in terms of entity linking specifically in cultural heritage collections. There is some, but not as much. Um, one of the, the studies in particular, Van Hooland, attempted to assess the suitability of named entity recognition and entity linking tools for use in digital humanities contexts. They experimented with three different disambiguation services that are available online. So they used a service called Alchemy, they used DBpedia Spotlight. So DBpedia Spotlight is a way of searching across DBpedia, which is a structured representation of Wikipedia, and they used another service called Zamanta. And it raised some, um, some really interesting points regarding the, the the contextually appropriate entity selection. So 
this very much reflects what I mentioned about uh, Ireland in 1641. What's the most contextually appropriate entity for that mention in the source text? And they suggested that perhaps the best referent, if there is a best referent, is the one in which the majority of annotation sources can agree. So if you look at multiple different annotation sources and try to find agreement, that that tends to be the, the best solution. Nevertheless, uh, Van Hulen called for, for caution and awareness uh, and education on the part of those who would apply such tools, basically saying that you, you need to be really sh you need to be aware of the, the potential risks or noise introduced by such service and, and not to be too trusting of what the machine tells us without manual review or intervention. Uh, other work by uh, De Wilde um, also sought to, to look at the use of entity linking, partic particularly for digital archives. Um, so he invested the applications of entity linking on German and Dutch doc documents, and they ranged from the early 19th to the mid 20th century. Um, the texts were digitized using OCR, um, optical character recognition, so there's likely to be some noise introduced by that process. So an automated process of, uh, of transforming a, a photograph to digital text will be more noisy than someone manually transcribing. Do I use a very simple disambiguation method based upon dictionary lookups? Um, and Sparkle queries, which are a way of querying a, a linked data uh, document, a linked data store, where there was, where if there was more than one possible referent for um, for an entity, DeWild basically chose the longest match. Um, that approach it was extremely simple, but it, it actually achieved quite impressive results when compared to the state of the art of entity linking systems. Um, and, and he was very enthusiastic uh, about the results and he actually, uh, I don't know if this has happened, but he planned to integrate um, the output of that entity linking software into a, a search interface for a digital humanities project called Historisch Kranten. Um, and I don't know if that actually took place or not. And he also interesting, interestingly suggested that the noise introduced by OCR may not create too big a problem for these softwares. So uh, I don't know whether that was just down to particularly good OCR for the collection he was working at, or whether that noise that's introduced doesn't actually create too much of a difficulty. One of the really interesting studies and one of the studies that, that Gary's PhD has looked at um, a lot is by uh, Carmen Brando and, and colleagues. And it focused on this problem of poor entity coverage in knowledge bases. So where you don't have good representation of the entities in your collection in a knowledge base, then you're, you're in trouble right from the start. So how do you go about addressing that? So what they tried to do was disambiguate re with respect to multiple knowledge bases simultaneously. So to try and integrate many different knowledge bases. It doesn't rely on language similarity, so that's good for us. You don't have that uh, problem with inconsistency between the source language and the, the knowledge base language. And you can limit the knowledge base by geographic region or time period, which is really good again because it reduces the amount of candidate entities that you have to disambiguate to. Um, so it limits that variation that's in the process. So given a set of entity mentions as input, so identified entities in the collection, the system, which is called Redden, um, begins by retrieving a set of candidate references from an index built on one of the knowledge bases. Um, and that knowledge base uh, should be the one that's most representative of the collection being linked. So the one that you think has the most coverage of your collection. 
references are then retrieved from all the other knowledge bases using using linked data approaches. So an owl, say, MAS, or a SCOS exact match. Entities retrieved from all the knowledge bases are then fused into a single unified graph representation and uh, for each candidate referent. And once the fusion process is complete, then Redden applies a, a graph centrality measure to try and determine which is the most likely referent for each mention. So it's a really good example. It's an interesting example of an attempt to perform entity linking, particularly in cultural heritage. It doesn't rely on language similarity, as I said. You can limit the knowledge base uh, so that only entities from that particular geographic region or time period are considered, which tends to be successful or useful in cultural heritage contexts. So a couple of examples of our own studies, but we, we ran an experiment on, a small experiment on 1641 depositions, where we selected 16 of the depositions from the, the 8,000. All of them were about 800 words in length, so there's a reasonable amount of content in there. We chose them from a geographical spread across Ireland, but then selected them randomly from within each county removed any marginalia and deleted or any deleted or redacted text so that's where pe in the original manuscript people have crossed out words and we broke the text into approximate sentences we then manually annotated all of the people and locations mentioned in those 16 depositions the annotated corpus had 480 instances of people and locations those mentions refer to 283 unique individuals so there's obviously multiple mentions of the same person or the same place of those, only 64 of the 283 were found to have a suitable ref re referent in DBpedia. So that kind of confirms your intuition that a modern knowledge base isn't going to be sufficient to correctly disambiguate a historical cultural heritage collection. The remaining 219 were assigned a nil label, which means there is no referent for this in the knowledge base. So that's fairly self-explanatory, right? You'd expect that to be the case. The experiment then was, given the human annotated depositions, we wanted to assess how well annotations provided by an entity linking system would do, would do when we match them to those human annotations, right? So we took the 283 people and locations, we searched DBpedia, we figured out where they were, and there was only 64 of them, and all the others were given nils. We did that manually. We then wanted to compare how well an entity linking system would do at, at trying to do that automatically without human intervention. So we used an experimental platform called Gerbil, and the entity linking systems were basically provided with the source text of each deposition and the full list of extracted entities. The only task which the entity linking system had to do was try to match these to an entry in the knowledge base. So to try and do that linking step, that disambiguation step. A wall of results here, but basically this is our, uh, our overall results for all of the systems that we tried. So all of the systems that we tried are down the left-hand side. These are existing entity linking systems, DBpedia Spotlight being a famous one. Uh, and we tried them all on the same experiment, same set of entities, same source text. This table represents the results for, for a standard evaluation. Um, so it, it tries to assess basically true positives the number of correctly annotated entities. True negatives, the number of correctly ignored entities, the number of nils, entities which don't have an entry in the, in the knowledge base. So we, uh, we also want to assess the number of false positives. So the number of entries which were annotated were given a link from DBpedia, even though they don't have uh, a referent in DBpedia. 
And then also the false negatives, number of entries which were ignored when they should have actually been annotated. Um, so you can see that the, the system which stands out here is Agdistus. Okay, so if, if you look at the measures, basically the closer to one you get in all of these measures, the better you're performing. So this measures precision and recall. So these are common measures in, in search technologies. So precision is, if you imagine a Google search result that has 10 items in your ranked list, precision measures of those 10, how many are relevant? How many are relevant for the query that you made? So it's accuracy, you know, of the 10, are all of them in the right topic? Recall then measures of all the right results that exist in the world, how many did I retrieve? So where there are a number of valid results, how many did I retrieve? And then F1 is the harmonic mean of the two. It tries to balance recall and precision to give the best overall performance of the system. Okay, so you can see that Agdesis performed best, but there's a, there's a catch to that, right? It performed the best by quite a margin. If you look down the list on all of the metrics, the closest to it was Fox across the way, but it's, it's quite a ways back. This is a dramatic difference. What this table presents is when we only considered response from the annotators which were contained in the knowledge base. So this essentially considers how well the systems performed if we ignore emerging entities, so those entities which don't exist in the knowledge base. So this is just the 64 entities which do have entries in the knowledge base. And you can see that Agdis has performed horrendously. And now Kia and Dexter are performing extremely well. The reason we figured out that Agdis was performing so well overall was that it was just marking nearly everything as nil. It was saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know what the right entity is, nil. So overall, because there's only 64 correct answers and 280 or 40-odd uh, nils, it was doing quite well, right? You mark everything as nil, you're going to be right 230 times out of 300, right? You're doing okay. But when we actually measured how well it was annotating when an entity exists, it dropped off, right? And Kia and Dexter performed really well. But if we flip back... Overall, Kia and Dexter didn't perform well. And this creates an interesting debate, right? Which would you rather? If you're a historian, which would you prefer? Would you prefer a system which, when an entity exists, it gets it right a lot of the time, but when an entity doesn't exist, it's still annotating it with random crap. Well, it's not random, but you know, it's incorrect links, right? And that introduces a lot of noise, whereas Agdestus might only annotate very few entities, but when it does, it tends to be right. So there's a, a balance to be had there, and you need to weigh up those results um, in, terms of, in terms of which is most appropriate for your system. This last table presents the results of the experiment when only emerging entities are considered, so only the nils. So how often did it get it right when there wasn't an entry in the knowledge base? And Agdesis obviously performed extremely well because it's marking lots and lots of things as nils. Um, but other systems started to perform well in this as well. So essentially, you're looking for the best balance of both. The outcomes, Agdesis is rewarded in the overall metrics for its conservatism. It's not annotating unless it's really, really sure that the entity is the right entity. Others, like Dexter, are penalized for their overzealous annotation. They're being a little too liberal and just uh, annotating whenever they get any kind of clue. 
Scholars need to be able to trust the annotations produced by entity linking systems, so you would probably in a, a historic research context lean towards conservatism. And one of the most significant problems is the lack of coverage in cultural heritage uh, entities in modern general knowledge bases. So I'll fly through our current work is looking at addressing that. It's trying to build our own knowledge bases based upon primary sources, existing primary sources and secondary sources. So Gary's working on this at the moment, generating our own knowledge base to see if we can get better coverage of the entities through our own knowledge base generated from some of these sources and then do a better job of annotating the collections as a result. Why do all of this? So this is a quote around generous interfaces. Um, but basically, we want to be able to su supply or build better interfaces to cultural heritage systems which support more explorative means of accessing those collections, different ways in apart from just your traditional searching for a word or browsing the collection. Um, so this is from Mitchell Whitelaw. It was Digital Humanities Quarterly in 2015. Open the doors, tear down, tear down the drab lobby. Instead of demanding a query, a generous interface would offer multiple ways into the collection. It would support exploration as well as focused inquiry where search currently excels. In revealing the complexity of a digital collection, a generous interface would also enrich interpretation by revealing relationships and structures within a collection. Um, so some of those generous interfaces that we've built off the back of being able to understand the entities in the collection. This was in Cultura, where we did social media analysis, or social network analysis, sorry, of the, uh, of the entities within the collection. So we were able to look at entities across those 60,000 people mentions and show where people were connected. And that's not just people, but also places. Who was mentioned in, in relation to certain places? Who was mentioned in relation to certain organizations? Um, and looking at those connections across that vast weight of time and those big range of people. We were able to do entity-oriented search, so you could search for particular mentions of people across the collections. Um, and then we had the normalization, so you can, you can highlight any portion of the, the text of the depositions and normalize that, which the historians initially, by the way, were, were really, really reluctant for us to do. They didn't want us to do this because they felt, or they at least didn't want us to expose this to the public because they felt there was, there was context that would be lost, right? The, the way in which the original manuscript was written holds information, and if you change that, you're changing the context. So we eventually over time came to a compromise where it's still the original early modern English text that's displayed in Cultura, but you can highlight sections of it and normalize those sections to see what it looks like. And the normalized text in the background drives our entity-oriented search and our social network analysis. The Down Survey of Ireland, which is uh, available at downsurveytcd.ie, um, has allowed us to connect these maps. So it was uh, one of the first national level land surveys taken to this level of detail in the world. And it allowed us to connect this with the 1641 depositions. So the land survey was connected between 1656 and 1658. So it's very contemporary to the depositions. But it allowed us to look at things like crimes and place. So we've plotted in Ulster all of the murders that occurred in the 1641 depositions and geolocated them on the down survey maps of Ireland. So you can see where the concentrations of activity were during that rebellion. We've also allowed, uh, we've, we've 
been able to do the change in land ownership. So we've been able to do this at a national level. So what you're seeing here is land ownership in 1641, and this is land ownership in 1670, and this is for County Kerry. So on the left, uh, on both maps, sorry, uh, yellow is Catholic held land, blue is Protestant held land, and purple is unowned lands like national park, mountains. Um, so you can see the dramatic change in land ownership between 1641 and 1670 as land was seized and redistributed. So it allows us to do that level of detail with relation to people and places that you couldn't do without this entity disambiguation process. And the last thing I'll mention, because I know I've run long, um, is as Neil already mentioned, the Beyond 2022 project. So this is a project currently running and we're trying to digitally recreate the Public Record Office of Ireland that was destroyed at the uh, inception of the Irish Civil War back in 1922. So we're coming up to the centenary of the destruction. We've already recreated the physical space. So we have really detailed Office of Public Works plans which show extraordinarily deta extraordinary detail of the building, the materials that were used, the, the decorative ironwork on the stairwells. So we've created a 3D virtual reality model of the archive. So you can pop on an Oculus Rift, you can walk around the archive as, as it would have existed, but the shelves are empty. And that's where Neil and his colleague, colleagues come in in that we're working with the National Archive, National Archive of Ireland, Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, and a, a whole host of other archives around the globe to try and pull back material where it exists. So copies of the original material, surrogate material, replacement material, um, lots and lots of copies were taken of the original material and sent back to, to London. So a huge volume of material exists, which could directly replace the material that was lost in the destruction of the archive. So we're now looking to, to recreate or repopulate those shelves and bring back that lost archive. Stuff which was presumed lost forever, but in fact isn't the case because of the, the detailed investigatory work of our, of our colleagues here and, and back in Trinity College also. So that's all I have to say. So thank you all for listening. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.